I'm going to try not to blow out this candle this morning because that symbolism wouldn't be great. <laughs> Easter is not the celebration of a past event. The Alleluia is not for what was. Easter proclaims a beginning which has already decided the remotest future. The resurrection means that the beginning of glory has already started. Let me say that again. Easter is not the celebration of a past event. The Alleluia is not for what was. Easter proclaims a beginning which has already decided the remotest future. The resurrection means the beginning of glory has already started. Carl Rayner. While we didn't read this this morning, I decided to be gracious to the readers and back off a bit. Uh, but actually, chapter 15, if you have your Bibles, verses 3 to 8 sets the tone for what we're going to unpack this morning. In verses 3 to 8, Paul says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. First importance. And here... I've got it underlined in my text, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So He died, He was buried, and He was raised according to the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Cephas, or Peter, and then to the Twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. So we living witnesses when this was written. Though some have fallen asleep. That's a euphemism for they've passed on. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also. In other words, there is proof. When I'm writing this, Paul says there's proof. These witnesses are still alive. They can testify to this. They saw him. Well, as Leroy was reading, you probably thought, oh, my word, it's back and forth, and does this make sense? And, and you know already that I'm going to pick up on the grammar. Okay? So you have seven times the word if. There's a conditional clause. We won't worry about whether it's first, second, or third class condition. It's a conditional clause. If this, then this. And so then is repeated nine times. But is repeated four times, four, five times, so twice. And guess what? The whole text talks about you and me. Nope. Christ, or a pronoun referring to Christ, is mentioned 24 times. This passage is all about Christ. Make no mistake, it's all about Christ. So Paul starts by presenting a progressive argument, and you'll see in a minute that it's a progressive argument, with the factual implications of not believing in Christ's resurrection. So verses 12 to 19, I call it the negative. And if you could flash that, there we go. I hope you can see that. It might not make sense to you at the moment, but we have on the left factual implications, then personal implications. That's all negative, but there's the big but, then the good news. And that's how we're going to progress this morning. So, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, and you can follow in your Bibles, then if it is preached that Christ has not been raised from the dead, then how, if he's been raised, then how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And if that is true, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. It's logical. And if Christ has not been raised, 
then our preaching is useless and your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching and your faith, they're both in vain. And more than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. So here's his progression. If this is true, then this is true. And if that's true, then this and this. Okay? So, so this morning, if there's no resurrection, then we're all wasting our time here. It is key, the resurrection of Christ. It is the key to our victory. You see, dying on the cross but not being resurrected still is defeat. Resurrection is victory. And then Paul continues by presenting a series of personal implications for not believing in Christ's resurrection. So he goes from his logical, factual, back and forth, to personal implications, verses 15b to 19. And he says, but he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. So if the dead are not raised, then he didn't raise him. For, and here are all the implications, if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. He seems to be hammering home on this one point. If the dead are not raised, then Christ is not raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile. I think he's repeating himself. And if he's repeating himself, that means it's important. And then your faith is futile, but not only that, if Christ has not been raised, then you are still in your sins. Then we're still living with this problem of sin and death, if Christ has not been raised. And then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. So this is, a, again, a negative spiral, which seems to suggest that the resurrection is pretty important, because without it, we are still in our sins, we will still face death, and there will be no resurrection, no victory. And then he says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, then we are of all people most to be pitied. If this is a big hoax, if this is a myth, then Paul says, you and I, living this way, are of all people most to be pitied. Who are you and me, if there's no resurrection? The main point of verses 12 to 19 is that if there is no future bodily resurrection of all Christians, then Jesus himself was not bodily raised, and that makes Christianity futile. It makes Christianity futile. Paul obviously repeats this thought from several different angles in these verses. The upshot is that all of the following are the results if there is no bodily resurrection. Both the apostolic preaching and the Corinthians' faith are useless, verse 14. Paul and his companions are liars, verse 15. All humanity stands condemned because of their sins, verse 17. And those who have already died, including believers, are eternally lost, verse 18. And as I've just said, as a result, Christians are most deserving of other people's pity or compassion, since they have given up creaturely comforts and endured persecution for the sake of an empty promise. Verse 19. And I like what Paul says when he starts this letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1.18. 
For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is foolishness to those who are perishing, to those who have hardened hearts, those who are blind to truth, but for those of us that have soft hearts, those of us who are open to the message of the gospel, those of us that believe in Christ, it is the power of God. Verses 12 to 19 return to the theme of the absolute necessity of the bodily resurrection, both for Christ and for believers, in order for Christian faith to be genuine and valid. Paul doesn't permit a perspective on Jesus that views him merely as a good moral teacher. Either Jesus was who he said he was, or he was a charlatan and a liar. You can't have a third option saying he was a good guy. That, That option doesn't actually work. You can't have a Christianity that considers it simply as an admirable collection of proverbial truths about how to live. If the resurrection is false, Christianity is worthless. If Christ was not raised, death, the penalty for sin, is not conquered. And his death in particular could not provide forgiveness for sins since it would not have eradicated death. So Jesus, when he rose from the grave... He conquered death. It was the last thing that he needed to conquer. And he conquered death. Finally, I think Paul didn't experience enough natural enjoyment in his life of constant turmoil and persecution to see any point in continuing the struggle if it were based on a myth. The disciples would not have gone to their death to defend a lie. I think it's Josh McDowell that makes the case when he talks about the resurrection and says that even the most powerful government in the world at the time, and I'm referring to Watergate, which only people my age and older will remember, these most powerful people couldn't protect a lie. They fell like dominoes. And yet a motley crew of disciples went to their death to defend what they knew to be the truth. If it was a lie, they would have all caved. It was the truth. Fortunately, Paul affirms the resurrection and our victory as a result And that's our third paragraph, verses 20 to 28. These are the positive implications. This is the victory. And Paul says, But in Christ all are made alive. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So, in contrast to everything we've just said, All these negative implications. He says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For, since since death came through one man, so the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. See, when Adam took the fruit, the forbidden fruit, when Adam and Eve took that, that wasn't just a careless, oh, I made a slip. We, we tend to say, you know, that was a white liar. We trivialize sin. Actually, I think we need to probably work at, maybe we need to work at confession. Uh, I, I think that's a missing component, both personal and corporate confession. But when, he took, when, when Adam and Eve took the fruit, there was actually open rebellion against God. And, and, and in doing so, Adam and Eve broke their union with God, 
and formed a union with death. And so after Adam and Eve, we all die. And, and because of Christ, who is the first fruits, we can live. And then Paul says, but each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must himself reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. So the wonderful news here is that none of the negative implications we read about earlier are true. None of those neg- negative implications are true. Christ has been bodily raised and has thus set into motion a chain of events that will com- culminate in a universal demonstration of the absolute sovereignty of God. Make no mistake, God is still sovereign. The victory is won. There are times where it might look uh, difficult, Your circumstances or mine might be really difficult to handle. Uh, We may struggle, but it will not change the fact that the victory has been won. It is sealed. Verse 20 to 28, uh, sorry, 20 to 22, describes how Christ's bodily resurrection guarantees the future resurrection of all believers. Just as the first fruits of a harvest herald a much larger crop to follow. And I'm, this alludes to the Old Testament practice. The imagery of first fruits here links to the feast of first fruits in the Old Testament. On that day, at the beginning of the grain harvest, the Israelites would bring the first sheaf harvested and dedicated to the Lord. And this offering assured the Israelites that the rest of the harvest would follow. So that's the first fruits. By the way, I, this isn't the point here. Uh, but first fruits, I, I believe that I should take uh, the first part of what I'm blessed with and give it to God. I don't wait to see if there's anything left at the end of the month. Because uh, there's always too much month at the end of the money. So first fruits means first, right? It, it's, it's my sense of priorities. Okay? And this is not, an, this is not a message about offering. Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection, the first person to be raised from the dead permanently. Yes, there were others that were raised from the dead. His resurrection assures us that someday there will be a complete harvest with us included. We will be part of that complete harvest that that first fruits is part of, that starts. It's important to recognize here Paul's notion of representation. Adam stands as a representative of all human beings, and what happened to him will happen to all. All human beings will die. Christ also stands as a representative of, the, of an entire group of people. But in this case, it is not all human beings. The all is actually limited. It's only all those who believe in him. So the first all includes every human being. The second all actually only includes those who are followers of Christ. 
Paul's emphasis here is that the all who will be made alive are all those who are in Christ. So Paul points out the parallel between Adam's sin leading to the sinfulness of all humanity and Christ's resurrection leading to the resurrection of all his followers in verse 21 and 22. Because Adam represents the entire human race that would descend from him, sin spread throughout the whole world. But because Christ, as fully human, represented the entire human race in bearing our sins, he is able to apply the benefits of his death and resurrection to all who accept those benefits, those who belong to him. Verse 24 to 28 then explain what will subsequently occur. After an unspecified interval of time, yes, I said that, I meant it, after an unspecified interval of time, the end or goal of human history will arrive. And I think when he was pressed on this point, Jesus said, no one knows except the Father. So if you're trying to put a date on it, uh, that might be challenging. By this time, Christ will have destroyed all opposition to his reign in the universe, both human and demonic. And finally, death itself will be destroyed, so that God's people will never again have anything to fear for all eternity. That's, That's the goal of history. Christianity lives or dies upon the claim of Christ's resurrection. So the overarching message here in the passage we read this morning is that a future glory and resurrection is inevitable for those who place their hope in the resurrected Christ. It is for this reason that the resurrection of Christ was at the center of Paul's theology. In fact, when Paul was on trial for his life before the Jewish leaders, he summed up the charge against them as his hope in the resurrection of the dead. It was at the center of his theology. In the end, Paul gave his life with the full assurance that death was not the end. Paul died a martyr's death. Rather, death is temporary. An enemy that will soon be totally defeated. Oh, victory in Jesus. This morning, we want to celebrate this victory together. We want to celebrate by taking communion. And, and I personally, as I think about it, although there's never a bad time to take communion, but I'm happy that we're taking communion on Sunday instead of on Friday. Because communion is also a celebration of not only his death, but also his resurrection. So this morning, it's a celebration of victory. It's a celebration of victory. We believe that the Lord's Supper is an ordinance of the Lord in which gathered believers eat bread, symbolizing Christ's body, given for his people. And we drink the cup of the Lord, symbolizing the new covenant in Christ's blood. We do this in remembrance of the Lord, and thereby proclaim his death until he comes. We partake of Christ's body and blood, not physically, But spiritually and by faith, we are nourished with the benefits he obtained through his death as we grow in grace. As we do the physical act of eating and drinking, we are to do the mental act of remembering. 
That is, we are to consciously call to mind the person of Jesus as he once lived and the work of Jesus as he once died and rose again and what his work means for the forgiveness of our sins. In that way, the Lord's Supper roots us time after time in the nitty-gritty of history. Bread and cup, body and blood, execution and death, and we remember. But there's something much deeper than remembering. Here we are as believers who trust in and treasure Jesus Christ. And Paul says that believers participate in the body and blood of Christ. Literally, we are sharing in his body and blood. We are experiencing a partnership in his death by faith. Today, we want to celebrate this victory together as a church family, as fellow Christ followers. Today, we want to affirm our decision, our commitment to follow Jesus, and to submit to his lordship in our lives. Today, as we partake of the bread and the cup, we do so remembering Christ's death on our behalf, but also his resurrection and victory, a victory that is shared by all who put their hope and trust in him. I'm going to read one more passage, and then I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to go down, and maybe Diane can help me. We're going to put a basket and a tray on, on that table for this aisle to come up and partake, and also on that table for this aisle to come, and, and then also there will be in the middle. Uh, after I have prayed, a uh, praise band will come up, and, uh, and you can come up. This is not coerced. It's voluntary. Uh, you can come up as families. This is open. If you want to take communion this morning, we invite you to do that. Um, we, we want to celebrate together, Okay. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three to 26 The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had broken it, he had, when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're here this morning to celebrate this amazing event of Christ's resurrection, which made possible our renewal, our salvation our restored relationship with you and our hope of resurrection and union with you. Lord, we thank you for the sacrifice you made on the cross for each one of us. We thank you for the cup and the bread. And we ask, Lord, that as we make our commitment together, that you will strengthen our faith, that you will strengthen our submission and obedience to you. And we do this in gratitude for your victory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.